The Athletic. Round two of MotoGP 2022. It's been a return to Indonesia at the brand new circuit of Mandalika. New tarmac has given all sorts of trouble for so many people throughout qualifying. Hondas have been really backed into a corner with tyres that just didn't work underneath them and ultimately has seen a huge crash before Mark Marquez and he's been put out of this Indonesian race already and who knows when he's going to return. That is a return to the battle days for our multiple MotoGP world champion. Come race day, it turned out wet with a huge storm delaying the start. But after just over an hour, the race was won by Miguel Oliveira on the factory Red Bull KTM. Win number four for him after Austria, Portugal, Catalonia, and now Indonesia. Three dry wins and now a great strong wet win in front of many wet specialists. Only two riders didn't finish the race, Jorge Martin when he crashed and Andrea Dovizioso when his bike just cried enough and stopped. So it was really a very strong day for Oliveira. Fabio Quattararo was second with fellow Frenchman Johan Zarco third. So it was a good weekend for the French after winning the Six Nations rugby the night before. Simon Patterson and Valentin Harunchi join me, Toby Moody, for a chat about Indonesia. Val, what was the best bit of the weekend for you? Oh, the best bit of the weekend is that a, a race took place. Because I think about an hour before the race, a lot of us were coming to terms with the idea that we've spent you know, three days of testing in Mandalika, two days of practice and qualifying, and it was all going to be for naught. We were going to leave with, with no winner, no points awarded, which would have been, I would have been hard to take. And thankfully, the the skies decided to spare us that for a bit, and we got to we got to hold a race. Thank thank goodness. Simon, what was the best part of the weekend for you? Uh, we didn't quite realize it at the time, but the best part for me was whenever it started raining on Sunday afternoon, because I think we had a wet race that was safe and quite entertaining. And I think if we'd had a dry race with all the problems the circuit has had, it would have been attritional. People would have got hurt. It wouldn't have ended on as pleasant a term as it did. Yeah, well, we'll come round to the surface later on in this pod. Uh, for myself, what was the best part? Uh, we can all laugh at each other now, uh, proving that maybe we were all a bit wrong after the Qatar analysis and that we may well have a season of a lot of randomness in front of us. And I'm certainly signed up for that. I know a wet race is a bit of a one-off. I know a wet race can give a bit of a different result, but maybe some people really needed it. Uh, like Miguel Oliveira, for crying out loud. I mean, he said in Park Ferme, you know, I've had a difficult time the last few months hasn't he ever since that accident that befell him in Austria when he was coming off the strong Cat, uh, Catalonia victory last uh, summer, Simon. Um, we can't say that one swallow makes a summer. We can't say that one victory is going to put KTM in the front of the championship here on in. But they have had a podium and now a victory in the first two races of the year. So, mm. What do you think? Uh, I think it's really, really hard to take Sunday's performance into... Like, I, I think it's really, really hard, like you say, to assume anything from a wet weather race where he made a fantastic start um, that eventually, I think, largely contributed to his win more than anything else. Um, we know he's not particularly a wet weather rider. 
if you go back and watch the start of the race, he made an amazing start. He dove from P7 on the left-hand side right across the track. He got tucked in right behind wet weather specialist Jack Miller. And essentially for the next few laps, what Oliveira did was he let Miller find the wet spots, the puddles, the slippery bits. He sussed out exactly what he needed uh, from track conditions. And then when when he had got a bit of knowledge built up against someone who was, you know, maybe being forced to ride a little bit more carefully, he struck, he got past him, he cleared off, he won the race. Um, because of that circumstance, I think it's really, really difficult to read too much into uh, into any performance. If anything, the, the KTM performance of the year that still more than anything else highlights what might be capable for them is Binder's podium in the first race in Qatar based on the fact that it was dry, the fact that everyone was there, the fact that it's a circuit where they've traditionally struggled. Um but yeah, for me, Miguel Oliveira and KTM over the, the last few years have just been too up and down. Um, I think the word that Oliveira himself used a, a few races ago was spiky. Their, their performance is spiky, and I don't see anything that has changed that here. No, I, I, I don't necessarily agree in the sense that we can't take anything away from it. It's just, it's more evidence of the fact that uh, Miguel Oliveira has a certain professorial quality to him in races because yes different conditions but this is now the third consecutive Oliveira win we've seen where he he really both outthought and outpaced the opposition like this looked as comfortable as anything I'm, I'm not sure wet weather wins are supposed to look this comfortable but he again a, a guy who's been in really questionable form over the last stretch over the final stretch of last season and over you know obviously he crashed out of the first race and was completely unfazed and faced no pressure over that clearly because he just looked really, really comfortable, just had that extra bit of pace that he could deploy once Fabio started closing in at the back. I, I know it doesn't like it doesn't say much in the grand scheme of things, in that we don't know if Oliveira is suddenly not gonna be not gonna be spiky. Obviously we've already seen him dominate races like this. But it does you know, it's it's just good to have a reminder. All of MotoGP will have had a reminder, like, hey, this guy can, you know, when when it all clicks for him, he can just run away with a race very comfortably in this super competitive class. He can leave the weather specialist Miller completely behind. He can fend off Zarco. He can fend off a whole grid of of guys who are pretty good in the wet, while he himself never never really seemed that way. Well, to be fair, I don't know. I don't have a an extensive record of Oliveira's wet weather performances, but he's not the first who comes to mind. And this this time, you know, Brad Bender maybe comes to mind a lot more, and Oliveira absolutely had him covered today. You know, just really well done. Yeah, like don't for one minute think that I'm I'm talking down the performance that that Oliveira delivered. Um, I think it was it was an absolutely fantastic ride because of how intelligent it was, because of the way that he found Miller and followed Miller and learned off Miller and then took advantage of that. Um, it's more that the the issue is the KTM performance in the dry rather than Oliveira's performance in the dry. Um, we know that he's had his issues. We know that he's had his ups and downs. He's had his spikes in form after breaking the, the wrist or bruising the bone in his wrist uh, in Austria last year and, and various other things. But he's always been supremely talented, right? We, we've always known how quick he is. And it was absolutely another demonstration of that, um, which is probably quite useful coming into a a bit of an open contract season where he's one of the people that I think we've identified as the the most likely to be on the move. 
out sort of KTM, you mean? Yeah, yeah, out of KTM. In the, general, in general. In yeah. general, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Val, if I could, you know, when Miguel passed Miller out of that last corner, there was a very low camera angle. And the, the commentators, I think they said, oh, there was a problem with Miller. There wasn't a problem with Miller. Um, Miguel was wheeling with so much grip out of that final corner. He could get the torque on the ground and he just bolted and he was gone. He wheel anything that wheelies in the wet like that when other bikes are stiff and they were they were shaking around and we saw so many people have a wobble out of that last corner like Paul, like uh, Jorge Martin. Um, yeah, he just was on the day and when they're on the day like that, they can walk on literally, they can walk on water, they can walk on the ceiling. So I think it just worked with the uh, the, the sheer mechanical grip and, and strategy setup of, of the motorcycle. Ultimately, I think even, even in the dry before it rained, I think he definitely looked like a, a potential podium contender in terms of pace uh, from what we saw earlier in the weekend. But as Simon says, this is this is very timely because I think whenever somebody in MotoGP hits a rough patch, you can never be 100% sure that they're going to recover. For instance, I think a couple of years ago when Danilo Petrucci was in the Works Ducati team, there was just that one moment where his like where he just lost an average of 5-10 positions compared to where he was. Like he was racing for top 5, top 10, and suddenly he was racing for top 15, and it wasn't really exactly clear what happened, but he never really recovered that form, so he lost the Works Ducati seat, and then he never really recovered that form at Tech 3 either. And with Oliveira with what was happening last year, I know obviously the obvious answer is the wrist injury, but you just you had to wonder whether something has really come unstuck and you can never, never, never be sure that it will, you know, come back. And one wet wind doesn't change that, but it's just it's it's a good time to to remind the whole of MotoGP paddock, and obviously in a contract year, that you can do this sort of thing. I having watched Miguel Oliveira's pre-MotoGP career, I really genuinely like he was good, but I I did not think I would I would see him dominate three MotoGP races. Like I did not expect that to happen, and it it like all the stuff in between maybe has been somewhat questionable, but not most riders can't win MotoGP races the way he has been doing it. The the one thing I will say about KTM uh, this weekend is that so obviously in the media center, sitting next to all the other you know everyone sitting together. Uh, and I've been sitting next to MotoGP commentator Matt Don, and Matt has in- insisted this morning that Brad Binder was actually a contender for the win rather than Oliveira, because the KTM has actually looked quite strong this weekend. Um, they've they've looked pretty good in the dry. Um, Oliveira maybe not so much as Binder, but he they both had really good qualifying uh, performances, both at factory bikes, and. At most tracks, that isn't necessarily something, you know, wet form doesn't necessarily convert to dry form and vice versa. But one thing we have learned from this this weekend, obviously, we're going to come back to issues with grip levels at the circuit. But it seems like this is a phenomenally grippy track in the wet. Um, the, the, some of the riders today were just absolutely blown away by how much grip there was. Um, I We we did a, a, a debrief with Mir afterwards and he was laughing with us like, I, I like I was scaring myself going into corners because I was touching my elbow to the ground and then be like, I'm touching my elbow to the ground in the way. I'm doing it at every corner. How is that even possible? Um, so, you know, th- there is a lot of grip there. Um, and, and obviously the KTM's 
like Ducati and like Yamaha to a certain extent find a way to exploit it this weekend in both conditions and, and quite unlike Honda and Suzuki. It's interesting to hear you, uh, Guy. Maybe you, Val, if I could say, you know, well, you were surprised that Miguel Oliveira would win four Grand Prix. Uh, I disagree with you. I studied him maybe a bit closer in Mudder 2 because I was involved at KTM at the time. Sure, he was wearing the same colours as I was, so you have a bit of bias in your vision, but I believed in him. But he's won four Grand Prix in the top class. So has Banyaya. So did Taddy Okada win four Grand Prix. Kaczynski only won four. Quite surprised by that stat. Uh, Libero Liberati, Reg Armstrong, Marco Melandri won five MotoGP races. So he's in there. He's in there. He's not a no Grand Prix winner in the big class like Polis Bargaro. And he's, you know, he's more than one like Regis Laconi or something like that. He's, you know, so the stats say that he's going to continue. Um, Marco Lucanelli only won six. Different era, but each to their own. The stats are the stats. Much, much fewer. Much fewer Grand Prix. Fewer Grand Prix yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And as Vic Rees so yeah. famously said, 79.867% of all statistics are made up. So, <laughs> um, um, the person uh, uh, also who has had a great weekend full stop is Quattararo. They were nowhere in Qatar, and here they are. He was visibly quicker on the television when he came round one of the left-handers towards the camera, visibly quicker when he was closing in on the lead. And, and it was, what, four laps to go, Simon? And I thought, like maybe some people with you, he could just be with him on the line. Yeah, it, it looked like it was going to happen for about a lap, for like four laps to go for about a lap. It looked like he was going to do it. Um, obviously, whoever was in Oliveira's pit board was giving him good signals. He saw it was happening. He responded he didn't respond enough that I think if we'd have a full 27 lap race like we were supposed to, it would have been a different result. But he responded enough to to do something about it with a rather spectacular performance, actually. Um, for me, it's one of the rides of the day because he has been sort of never perceived as a wet weather specialist. He's always been perceived as someone that struggles in these conditions. He had, in reality, more to risk than Oliveira because he is the reigning champion and he's trying to defend that and put together a championship and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, yeah, the the rather unexpected performance from him was pretty great, actually. Oh, I don't I don't think he had more to risk than Oliveira. I think Oliveira crashing out of the lead could have sabotaged his MotoGP future or something like that whereas Quartararo will have a contract whenever he wants it but I see what you mean in terms of you know championship expectation and whatnot um Quartararo had a really really good weekend and I, I honestly when when it started raining given how how good he'd looked in the dry the whole time I thought well it just it figures everything's gonna go wrong this season for Fabio and he was a lot quicker in the wet than we've ever seen him in, in, in MotoGP, I think, because even that Le Mans race that he finished third last year, that was more being clever, I think, than sheer pace. I think there were a fair few guys who were quicker than him in those conditions. Mark, who crashed out, Miller, Zarco. And this time, not sure anyone was quicker than him, definitively. Uh, so, yeah, I, I said a lot of... Not great things about Yamaha in 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 last in last week's podcast, and I still I still stand by them. I don't think that 
having a good outing in the dry at Mandalika would have would have changed that a little bit because we've seen that Quartaro was quick in the test. I think the problems that are there are still there and they've lost one of their strongholds in Los Isles. So I, I worry they will lose more strongholds. But it's good that the bike works in the dry. Oh, in the wet. It won't always be this wet. Yamaha's problem has always been the half and half condition rather than the wet, the full wet. But it's good that the bike works in the wet with your lead rider. And it clearly did really, really well. It's very, very encouraging. Uh, they suddenly they need more wet races, which is not what I expected to say about Quartararo and Yamaha. It, it's not just Quartararo. Uh, Franco Morbidelli had a really strong race as well. Um, his entire problem was that crash and qualifying that put him so far back in the grid. Um, he said afterwards that he felt like he had done something to make amends for how bad his Saturday had gone with his Sunday performance, but fully believed that he would have been even further forward had he been further forward at the start. Um, but yeah, I, I think we can say definitively that Fabio Quartararo was the fastest person in the world on a motorbike in the wet today because he didn't get the start that Oliveira got. He had to really work for it. But whenever he got the chance to work for it, he was quicker than him. He was, you know, he was really impressive today. And that's not something we've seen. Um, the Yamaha does get a bit of an unfair rep as not being a great wet weather bike. Um, but I think that's exactly like you say, Val. It's partly because it's those mixed condition races. And it's partly because of some of the riders that have been on the Yamaha in the past who haven't been particularly good wet weather racers like Jorge Lorenzo, like Maverick Vinales to an extent. Yeah. Yeah. Valentino Rossi has always made the bike perform well in the wet. And I'm not 100% sure. I need to go back and double check this, but I think that might have been Fabio Quattararo's first ever full wet race on a Yamaha or a MotoGP bike. Because any other races he's, any other wet races he's had, I think have been flag to flags. And flag to flag races are are not full wet races. Um, you know they have that weird. They're not the, normal the last races. Fully yeah. wet straight race I can mm. think of is like Sepang eighteen. Yeah, I can't. I mm. can't think. I, of I, there's world. nothing else that comes to mind. Is you know so so maybe we've been judging him rather unfairly all this time, eh? Okay, so sixty four million dollar question. If it hadn't rained and it was dry, never mind the surface. Let's park that for a minute, guys. Do you think he would have won the race from pole? Probably. Yes, hundred yeah. percent. He would have led off the line and yeah. no one would have passed him. There Suddenly the Yamaha so launches really he's, well. He's got out of jail today well, hasn't yeah. he? He's really got Absolutely. out of jail. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's... I don't know if he's got out of jail, but I think he's had a lot of... an. He, he's, despite it being a wet race, it's actually been an easier day for him than it would have been in the dry. Mm. Um, he he would have been able to do the same in the wet and the dry as the wet, but it wouldn't have been as easy. It would It would have been a lot more risk... You know, there would have been a lot more chance to crash. Um, but at the end of the day, he had a good day. He finished second. Finishing second, Oliveira, he'll treat as a win in terms of championship points. Um, yeah, nothing to complain about there. You'll roll with that. <clears throat> You'll roll with that. Um, continuing the French vein, uh, we touched on Johan Zarco. He was quite frustrated by the time he got to the end of the race. Oh, I didn't do enough. And when I did, it was all too late. Is that... A- is there an echo in what he always says? Do you reckon, Val? I don't know. There was a, a bit of an editorial discussion on our end of whether Zarko lacks a bit of killer instinct and should have really won this race. I just I think that's a bit of a that's a bit on the harsh end. I think because if there were Ducatis in front of him, I'd probably feel different. But you know, given how 
how Miller faded and given how it didn't work at all for Bagnaia and given how Marini faded on the 22 and given that Martin was uncomfortable and crashed out, uh, Zarco's approach was probably closer to the optimal one. Like, I don't, I don't think you can really blame a guy. Like, I, it doesn't feel fair to, to in any way disparage his third place when that's the best a Ducati managed to do today. And there's, there's a lot of really good guys in terms of performances in this in this MotoGP field, being third out of out of twenty really good ones, I I still think I I don't think this is indicative of him being incapable to win, because honestly he probably if he pushed harder he'd probably thrown it down the road and then we would have been a lot a lot more critical. Yeah, I I I don't for a second think that he doubts a killer instinct because well simply because um there is a. We know there's a pecking order at Ducati. There is a hierarchy within the the manufacturer and their bikes. And the way that he was putting pulling moves on on Jack Miller, who is technically higher in that hierarchy than him, there's no there's no killer instinct, no lack of a killer instinct there. He was brutal with Miller at points, um, far more brutal than Miller was, or than uh, Fabio Quartararo was with Miller. And Miller was kicked off about the Quartararo move afterwards. So, um, yeah, I I think. Maybe it takes him a little bit of time sometimes to wake up. And that's his biggest feeling. It takes time for him to sort of realize that he's a killer. But we've we've seen too many uh, crazy Zarko moves over the years to to think that, yeah. Uh, you know, you're not a two-time Mother 2 world champion by falling out of bed. But I do think he sometimes overthinks things, and he maybe he hasn't got that last half a percent of half a percent of half percent killer spirit. Easy for us to say on the outskirts of the circuit rather than on the three hundred brake missile. But when he was passing Miller, I did shout at the television, and trust me, I do that a bit. I did shout at the television. This is not just a battle for the podium spot. This is a battle for next year. And that was also another factor that must have been going on in the pair of them's mind. You talk about a hierarchy in Ducati. The hierarchy is screwed at the moment because Banyaya has scored one point from a possible 50. He was the bloke who was my championship favourite, so I'm frustrated about that because I've made myself look a Wally now from three weeks ago. But I genuinely thought, i tell you what, what were the betting odds on Banyaya coming out of the first two Grand Prix with one point? I'd be a very rich man and we'd have a great beer tonight if we were all together, wouldn't we? <laughs> I mean, what is going on? I mean, do recall 2017 when Mark Marquez came out of the first two races with 13 points as opposed to 50 for Maverick Vinales, and it ended with a Mark Marquez championship. Uh, I think I wouldn't say these first two races are like a wash because obviously, you know, points are points, they count, but we don't really have anything even resembling a championship picture at this point. Uh, and Banya, he's in a hole, but he's like, it could have been worse. Uh, he got... Qatar was just like I'm. I'm still a little bit mystified at what happened in Qatar. I it's just the explanation that was provided. I I can't imagine how that accounts for how wrongly it went. But that's you know that's for another day. And here he just you know just I think got unlucky with the conditions. I think it was a if, if it was a normal dry race, I I'd, I'd expect him on the podium given what he showed during the weekend. Uh, is there a problem? Overall, like obviously one point in, in two races is a problem, but I don't know. I don't see like an overarching link just yet. Uh, maybe Peko is still not the 
the face of consistency that four wins and six races made him look like last year. That's probably it. But I mean, he'll, I, I don't think anybody doubts that he'll win races this year. And I still like his championship is not done, obviously. Two out of 23 or 23, 21, whatever. And he should have, in reality, like he should have had a race something like Fabio Quartararo's race last time out, where he was just inside the top 10 and scored some safe points. Um, he got caught out exactly the same as Jorge Martin did, um, only he managed to not go down. Um, there was a river running across the track at turn one. And the one concern all day was standing water. I think once we, once we announced we were having a race, he braked on the standing water. He locked the front. Both of them had, had the same crash, except Peko didn't crash. But uh, uh, you're absolutely right, Simon. He did fall on that little bit of water that was running across. But he overtook somebody with a slipstream. And he probably, on the data, I can surmise, arrived a kilometre an hour quicker. Uh, two kilometres an hour quicker. And he went, all right, I'm, I'm arriving quicker. Bother, or worse as that effect in Spanish, I'm going to have to squeeze that lever a bit more and it's just enough to get that water not in, and then you're down, and then you're down. Uh, it's that fine. But he, it was because he overtook somebody that he arrived on the scene of the accident a bit quicker, which is why the accident happened. And round and round you go. Just one word about Works Ducati. They're eighth in the team's championship and all of their constructors' points have been scored by non-Works bikes. That's is that going to get in their head in Bologna? Yeah, they're still going to win nah. the constructors' title. Okay, right. Nah, I, I've said it today. Nah, too early, <laughs> too early. If all right, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. come come European season. Uh, that's that's where they're, they're going to start looking. Right now, early season MotoGP. Just, there's nothing you can take away from from what's happened so far. I mean, there's some things you can take away, but nah, I, I don't think. I don't think they're going to be like regretting the Banyaya deal yet or anything like that. And I mean, we all know that those those non-factory guys are great. Like Jorge Martin, Johan Zarco, and Ea Bastianini. We've all sort of figured even before the start of the season that there'd be races where they finish ahead of the worst guys. They're good. Those bikes are really yeah, good. If, if there's one notion that's been reinforced in my brain again this weekend, it's that the, the real European, or the real season doesn't start until Europe. The, these you know the, today was just a complete write-off of a race in terms of championship and and you know and it all weekend was even before we um even before we had a wet race because michelin threw us a complete curveball with a new rear tire and it just yeah it might as well have been a non-championship round i i, I hear what you say and i'm not i'm not going to jump down your throat but 20% of the championship happens before we get to europe you've got to score these bloody points there's a hundred points before we get to Jerez. Sorry, uh, Portugal. Portugal. Sorry. Yeah. There's a hundred points available, so it is. It, it it feels in limbo, Simon. I think that's that's what maybe you're touching on as well uh, for everybody around in the paddock. But as Jerry Burgess said to me, it doesn't matter in which order you add up the points; they all add up to the same number at the end of the championship. You know, <laughs> it's the truth table. It's the truth table. So uh, yeah, there's a lot to there's a lot to play for. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Miller was fourth. We've kind of been round a conversation concerning the Australians. So let's move on to Alex Rins and Juan Mir. They were fifth and sixth, the two Suzukis, the only Suzukis on the grid. How did you think that they came out of the weekend? What have they got to say, Simon? Uh, Juan Mir was absolutely delighted with his race afterwards. Um, he he salvaged a disaster. Um, a guy who on Saturday afternoon was telling us that he might not finish the race unless things change dramatically because he had so little front feeling, um, suddenly pulls out a bunch of good points in fifth place. Yeah, absolutely. Like, that was a good result. Um and on the other side of the garage, the same thing applies to Rins. Um, Rins has struggled this weekend with illness. He's not quite had the same front confidence problems with as Mir. But let's be honest, if you're going to pick a Suzuki rider who's likely to crash in tricky circumstances, it's not Mir, it's Rins. So the fact that both of them got to the line, good results, yeah, there's, there's nothing there to be upset about. Um, Mir was genuinely like not surprised but delighted with his performance afterwards and and is talking you know a big game about how he on saturday afternoon didn't expect the championship to actually start here because of what we've said about championship starts in europe blah 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 but he he now has a result he can build off he feels um and they know exactly why they had a bad weekend because of that change in specification in rear tire that, that threw them a massive curveball i you know what i still think they're not very quick I guess we'll see. I'm, I'm, I'm really not, not convinced by what I've seen in Qatar and especially now what I've seen in, in Indonesia in the, in the dry practices. And yeah, I know, I know new rear tire, obviously, but just if they might be like, maybe they're just not very versatile, which normally is what you'd associate with Suzuki is that at least there's a certain floor level of performance that it, it should always get to. We'll see. I, I don't, it's a it's a it's a good result for the championship, but it's only a good result for the championship if the bike is as strong as it looked in the preseason. But if it turns out that its its level is if its baseline level is lower, then this doesn't really matter. And I'm, I'm I don't know. Uh, just the, the the dry bits were very disconcerting because again, Rins was competitive, reasonably there or thereabout. Mir was completely nowhere. He. Like, it's not about finishing or not finishing the race. I thought he could have easily, like, if it was dry, he could have easily finished outside the points because he had nothing. So, I don't know. I'm I'm still concerned a bit for Suzuki. I, I, I want to see some actual race-winning contention pace before, before I'm in any way optimistic. Simon, you touched on the different tyre, the allocations, the problems that they had at the pre-season test with the surface and trying to get it to work with the tyre. Track temperature on th- Thursday, 67 degrees Celsius with the Suzuki uh, uh, temperature gun that we saw you uh, publish. I mean, wow, that's just another world from the, oh, it was hot when it was 55 and Sepang. Just explain this quite simply what's changed over the weekend and why, and we'll come to it in a moment, Honda were in such trouble with their tyres. So, um, whenever we came here for the test, we brought the normal Michelin rear tyres in soft, medium and hard. 
The guys tried them. A few people ran race simulations, race distance, and the tires were starting to blister um, because of the heat, because it was so incredibly hot on a, on a reasonably abrasive surface, um, probably compounded a bit by the dust and the, the issues with loose stones that we've been having. So Michelin's solution um, at the last minute kind of to fix that was they reverted to the carcass, the, the construction from 2000, uh, from 18. The, the, the old, harder, less grip, more stable construction that you know people like Andrea Davizioso loved back in the day. And then they stuck the new compounds onto that construction and brought it here. Um, what that did was dramatically reduce the amount of grip available. Um, and then it basically pushed, changed everyone's setup completely, pushed all the problems they were having from the rear of the bike onto the front of the bike and just left people with no, no, no feeling from the front at all. Now, obviously, Honda have built a bike specifically for this new tire that is a lot more rear-focused. When I say new tire, I mean the old one, the one that we're using in Qatar. They've built a bike for that tire. And a few people, um, Paul Espagaro and Juan Mir in particular, were furious that basically Michelin's solution to a new problem was an old tire. You know, they, their argument was, well, we didn't bring an old bike to fix the problems we're having here, did we? Um, so they were they were just left, you know, un, unable to to come to any sort of a solution, really. It's quite telling that the people who have the biggest problems are the people who have the most different bikes uh, since, you know, sort of 2018. I think it, it's fair to say that the Yamaha basically hasn't changed at all. The Ducati is still very much the same Ducati. The KTM maybe has changed a bit more, but the the um, you know the Aprilia is different. The Honda is different. The Suzuki is different, and the the three manufacturers that didn't really show their colors this way. So yeah, um, it's a bit of a. I understand why Yamaha did it. I don't think it was the most elegant of solutions. Um, Michelin, but did I it. don't think it's a Michelin. Sorry, but I don't think it's Michelin's fault per se, I think that it, it highlights how rushed this entire race weekend was. There's been a huge push to have a MotoGP race in Indonesia. It happened sooner than it was really ready to happen. Um, and, and Michelin, although guys taking the blame for that, um, we, we should have sent the test riders here. In an ideal world, the factory test riders would have been here in the middle of last year, but with COVID that didn't happen. Um, then we would have come back to test at the start of the year with at least with the harder rear tire that we used this weekend. Uh, and people would have at least have had the chance to get used to it again to come here and race. But that didn't happen for multiple reasons. And yeah, those manufacturers paid the price for it. I think the person that paid the price for it the most was Mark Marquez. Exactly, exactly. Who had a huge crash during Sunday Massive. morning warm-up. I mean, just... Another world, another ter uh, terrifying, terrifying. It, it was near 100 cc high side, right? Correct. It, well, it was the biggest, highest high Which side we don't see I've anyway. ever seen. I've yeah. ever seen. Yeah. Uh, you know, the gap between him and Terra Firma was just like, is that just the camera angle? No, it's not. Because he got flicked off at 170 something kilometers an hour, which is 110 miles an hour. And as I regularly said on the commentary, you go down the fast lane of the motorway and open the door and jump out. Um, uh, and that's just rolling along the surface rather than being flicked off with a high side. Um, just coming back to the whole 
the, the, should the race have happened. You know, to be to, Simon knows this, but I'm just saying to people who maybe don't, it's not just about a technical aspect to a Grand Prix. It's about commercial aspects. It's about contracts in place. COVID's got in the way. This happens, that happens. Balance, can we fit it into the calendar? It's a complete nightmare for Carmelo Espeleta and his Dorna guys to balance it out. Simon's right. In my view, they should have sent the test riders last year to have a thrash round. They could maybe resurface. But more importantly, if they knew in advance by enough time that they had to use the harder carcass tyre with less flex in it for, the, say, the Honda guys, they could have made a swing arm that had more flex in it to compensate for the harder tyre. Instead, poor old Mark, as we saw in qualifying in the dry, he's got a hard tyre with no flex in it, and it's trying to swap ends on him at every single flipping corner. And ultimately... When are we going to see him back on a motorbike? It's a set of well, circumstances. I think the, the, the good thing, the good thing is that it seems like he's landed hard. He's concussed himself, which is let's let like let, let there is no. It is a serious injury. A concussion is a serious injury. It's a traumatic brain injury. Uh, but it seems to have not damaged his eyesight, which is has to be like concern number one. That double vision problem again. It hasn't damaged any joints. Um, it hopefully is fully recoverable and hopefully we see him back on a bike soon but it's a crash that didn't need to happen although i will also say that it's a crash that was partly his own fault because he didn't need to be pushing as hard as he was pushing in a warm-up session um my speculation would be that they thought they had found something or they were trying something that they were hoping was going to work for the race and he wanted to test it to the limit um, but he'd already had a big warning in that session at turn 10. And yeah, I think that was a crash that was the sort of, not recklessness, but it was right on the line. It's the sort of thing we saw from 2015 Mark Marquez. It's not the sort of thing we saw from 2019 Mark Marquez. That's the sort of thing that we saw from 2021 Mark, Mar Mark Marquez. But uh, I mean, just I, I don't have the falls report in front of me, but... I don't know how many of the other Honda guys crashed during the weekend, but I, I know for damn sure none of them crashed four times. So Mark was the most competitive of them on, on, on pace and on, on one lap speed, I think, pretty obviously. But he crashed and he crashed and he crashed, and that was just also the case last year. Uh, that That's a big concern, I think, because he, he keeps falling. And he, you know, he said in Qatar that this this part of the season was going to be his patient period that he wasn't you know that he was going to try to just bank the points he can because he's not ready to win but I'm like maybe he was only referring to Sundays I'm not sure how that tallies with falling four times in a weekend and yeah you know what easy for me to say I'm not on the bike obviously if you put me on the bike I'd crash in every corner repeatedly and break every bone in my body but there's you know there's some you have to have some questions over weekend management there because i just like at least some of those surely were preventable <laughs> like if if you if you watch the if you watched q1 with mark i mean simon will attest uh, in slack messages i wrote basically i wrote that a crash is coming during his lap that he crashed on because obviously everybody watching it on tv could tell that a crash was coming and then another crash was coming, and it also came. Uh, like, if a guy like me, who's, you know, doesn't know much about riding a bike, ultimately, can tell you that somebody's about to fall off, that probably means they should, you know, they should relax a little bit. What worries me, and you'll both get this, is a return to the 
bad old Mark, quick Mark, but bad old Mark north of the eyebrows. And you touched on it, Val. Other management going, oh, well, he's all right now. He's normal, right? Win the race at all costs. Do this, do that, do the fastest lap. All you got to do. Remember what Mark was like when he got off the bike when he returned to MotoGP at race, was it three last year in Portugal? He got off the bike, burst into tears because it was like, do you know what? I can still do this. And his words were, I need to look after my body a bit more. And he's gone back to the old days in in one morning or even 36 hours, arguably. And that's what kind of worries me. I Maybe this is wild speculation, but... I wonder how much of an influence it has that he got beaten in a straight fight by his teammate at the first race of the season. Paul Espagaro put in a really good performance at the first race. He beat Mark, which is not something that has happened to Mark by a teammate in five years. Maybe it's just... Paul Paul is not a threat to Mark Marquez. He's not a threat to Mark Marquez. He hasn't won a Grand Prix. He's not a threat. He's not a threat to the old Mark Marquez. Not a threat to the old Mark Marquez. But. Yeah, but my. No, no, no. Mark does occasionally take individual defeats a bit, a bit heavily. Like we've seen that in even some of his best seasons that it, it weighs on his mind. But. <clears throat> Sepang 2015. <clears throat> okay, yeah. I was, I was thinking more like, was it the, the rinse thing at Silverstone? He was really, I think, unhappy to lose that one even though it didn't matter yeah. in championship terms one bit. Because Rins is not a threat. No, but he was unhappy. Okay. He was upset. He's pissed. He lost yeah. the race, but he's not a threat for the championship. Yeah, but, he moved but on. He, yeah, it took him a little bit. He wasn't like, there were some races he was more okay to lose than others, and it didn't always seem to correlate with championship stuff. Uh, but I'm, I'm actually going to contradict myself a little bit, I think, because... Uh, I know, I know. But the, I was not arguing with himself rather than arguing with yeah. me. But like coffee, Simon. I don't think Mark's changed much in terms of how how much he pushes and how much risk he takes. I mean, remember, soon after, soon after returning in 2021, he started crashing his brains out in races. He crashed like four times in three consecutive races. It was just the the only he difference. Crashed twice that, in Le Mans. Yeah, yeah, in one race. Yeah, the only difference is that he has less of a grasp of where the limit is i think a little bit just not quite there yet and so in 2019 his you know magnus magnum opus season it's not like he didn't crash he crashed a whole bunch he just did it all in practice always and seemed to you know just shrug it off and and get unhurt and he just has less control over that this time but he's still maybe trying to ride as fast and take- yeah, but once you cr- once you crash, there ain't no skill in falling off. Mick didn't fall very many times, but when he did, the percentage of times one he nearly lost his leg, and the other one he never rode a bike again. You know, whereas bless him, Carlos Checa, love him as we do, he tumbled off when the sun came off, uh, and he just got up and carried on. Um, but um, yeah, I just worry, and I hope he's I hope he comes back. Does he need to go to Argentina? Ah. He needs the points, yeah, but he's had a he's had a belter of a crash there, and even he will go. If I do that again, you know, I'll run out of money in the bank every time I write a check. I'm 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 having an accident, you know. So. I mean, the problem is he'll probably expect to win in Argentina and Cota. Those are two. Re- I mean, Cota's obviously is absolute mark territory, <laughs> yeah. but also Termas. He's really good at the low grip Termas. So. But I don't know. Again, I don't think it's an approach thing. I don't think it's a philosophy thing. I, 
just doesn't quite have that that feel for when it goes away. That's 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 what I think is is the problem. And I don't think you can get Mark to change and go slower at this point. Mm. And if mm. if he should, I don't know what that would look like. So Alicia Spargaro, he had a terrible start to the Grand Prix, but then he was in the mid-pack that I'm sure the majority of the press office was shouting at the television for, Simon. I was, to a certain degree, joining you from afar. In the end, though, the Aprilia was just inside the top 10, ninth for him, teammate Vinales outside the points. Um, I've kind of lost track with where the Aprilia goes in the wet, but do you know what? They got the points. One of those weekends. Prilio, yeah, I think that's pretty much what we expected. Prilio was really good in the wet last last year with Lorenzo Savadori, who honestly maybe yeah. it could have used on the bike this weekend. Weirdly enough, uh, but yeah, I mean, should we like is Aprilia now in a place where a tenth place finish is a big letdown? I don't know. I, Simon's nodding. Yes, I think they are. I think so too. Yeah, but you know, somebody has to be tenth. So I don't know. Uh, Maverick still just looks like Maverick looks happy with where he is, but honestly, like it is taking a little while. And in the wet, he hasn't looked that great for for a very long time, and that hasn't changed with the with the switch from the M1 to the to the RSGP. But I, I wonder how long he'll be able to remain happy if the step in performance that we're all expecting sooner than later doesn't come it's just a otherwise it's just really hard to say much about this this particular aprilia weekends like it was more it was more aprilia-ish from two years ago than the aprilia we've maybe we're maybe expecting this season val you say that somebody's got to finish 10th that was darren binder by the way oh boy where did alicia <laughs> alicia was ninth was it alicia was ninth but darren yeah, binder okay. you know yeah. i'm leading you into Sorry. it that binder i mean i thought he was going to beat his brother for a bit wow I think so did his brother. Excellent ride. Really good. Uh, I think yeah. I think we get a, a reputation for being like Darren Binder bashers, which, I mean, look, anybody who who looks at him moving up from Moto3 after seven seasons of winning just the one race to the premier class of Grand Prix racing and thinks that whoever has a problem with that is is somehow biased against Aaron Binder. Anybody who's saying that is disingenuous. They know what the problem is. They see it. They see how the, the graduation does not flow out of the results. That doesn't mean we want Darren Binder to do badly. I, you know, having been to a fair few Darren Binder debriefs at this point, I have taken a, a big old liking to Darren. He seems like a very, uh, very chill, but also very thoughtful guy in that he's really happy to face our questions and talk to us and discuss things with us, us being the, the media. I was really, really happy to see this. I don't think it changes anything about going Moto3 to MotoGP and about what the reasoning was for Rana and F Yamaha giving him the, the ride. But ultimately, it's good for MotoGP that he's proving competitive. And, and he is. He really is. There are some sessions where he looks far away, but he looks really good in Qatar. And I think everybody expected him to be pretty decent in the wet, and he showed he's proper decent today. He was last after the opening lap, and he ended up fighting for like he's fighting for eighth. Really good. We're we're I think we're all very very impressed. Yeah, like the the the, the whole thing with Darren Bender for me anyway has been that Baron, Darren Bender was not the most deserving rider in the world who wasn't in MotoGP. 
There were other people who deserved the ride more than him. There are a lot of rough edges still to be polished off from Darren Bender. Please excuse the small truckload of fireworks that have just been detonated in the background. And but 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 neither of those things take away from the fact that he is a talented writer. Like he is obviously a talented writer. There's no doubt in that. Um and he, he there will be an occasion where he has the opportunity to show his talent. One of those occasions, if you're brave enough, is in the way on a Yamaha, because it's a bike that goes well, as we've seen. It's a rookie friendly bike, it goes well in the wet now. And he, he did a good job. Um like absolutely. Um he I think showed his inexperience towards the end of the race by getting a bit duffed up after making a really good sort of run through the field and then dropping back a little bit. And But I think part of that is also because his brother Brad was never going to let him beat him. Um, he would have knocked both of them off before letting him beat him because that's what they're like. Um, but yeah, it was an exceptional performance. Like Fair play to him, chapeau. Yeah, I also should say, I, I, I wrote a piece about this, but uh, I think it's worth mentioning again. I was really impressed with the fact that instead of getting mad at Remy Gardner's post Qatar GP criticism of the way he, of the way he battled. Uh, Darren sounded like he was really keen to take that on board and to, to do everything to leave his Moto3 reputation of a wild, aggressive guy uh, behind. I think, I think that's really, really encouraging because it would have been really easy for him to arrive in MotoGP with a bit of a chip on his shoulder because so many people have questioned his move and, and, after a first race that goes well, just become completely uninterested in any sort of criticism or in, in what others are saying and just feel that sort of everybody is up against him. Uh, and he didn't do that. He seems, you know, just seems really chill about it. Lots of, lots of respect to that because that's not what I would expect from a MotoGP rider. They're usually a lot less open to hearing that their rivals aren't very happy with them. I, I like, I genuinely think that point has been missed. Um, and maybe that's our job for not selling it clear enough in the, the week since or whatever, since Qatar, but, but Remy Gardner was like absolutely not having a moan about Darren. He wasn't like picking a fight or anything. He was trying to offer constructive criticism and Darren, to his credit, took that constructive criticism on board and, and listened to him. And the two of them are still friends and they had a good conversation. Um, and, and hopefully Darren learns from it because it'll make him a better writer. Like Remy's not an asshole. Remy wasn't trying to be an asshole. Um, yeah, fair play. We saw Bastianini being victorious at the opening Grand Prix of the year. Uh, 11th for him. Um I suppose the highlight of the day was it was uh, the boss uh, Nadia, the team manager's birthday today. He got eleven points. He'll be back another day. He'll be back on the podium. They've got through it. Is that the kind of vibe? Do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, this is exactly what we expected of them at the start of the season, right? We expected good days and bad days. We expected them to 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 shine when the the stars aligned. They did exactly that in Qatar. There was always going to be days where they didn't do it. Yeah, I, I don't think today today didn't change my opinion of the potential of the 2021 bike or of any Bastianini at all. Well, and then first proper proper wet race for him in MotoGP, right? I don't remember how he fared at Le Mans, but uh, like he, he he seemed to like really need some time to get into it. But by the end, like from as far back as he came, by the end it was again the regular old Dene Bastianini coming through the field and being being quicker than most towards the end of the race 
And honestly, if we're going to see that every Sunday, then whew, imagine if every Sunday Nebastini just comes through towards the end and is half a second quicker than everybody else. But, you know, we, we have to see some more representative races, obviously. But he's championship leader after two after two races. How about that? Yeah, he, um, and he was just inside the points in Le Mans last year, which was kind of where he was at that point. Um, so it wasn't really, you know, it, it, it wasn't a surprise performance. It was kind of where his level was, wet or dry at the time. Um, and I think looking at where the other Ducatis were today, maybe that's you know something similar. It was kind of where his level was today, but you know that that, that doesn't. The only, the, I guess, the only reason why it surprised me is because he wasn't closer to the front at the start, based on how strong he was here in the test. Um, but again, a race weekend on a different surface is very different from. Uh, three days of testing where your job is to go fast. Okay, keep in touch with therace.com. Don't forget the dash, so the-race.com for all of your MotoGP and Formula One news. Formula One kicking off the same day as this Indonesian MotoGP. They've got their race in Bahrain. Uh, we've got international leading journalists both on the ground and away from the Formula One racetracks. We've got Gary Anderson, who can talk tech on the website and analysis, podcasts, everything. It is really going great guns with what we've got to offer for race fans wherever you are watching or listening around the globe. So, uh, Simon is has had a long day. Uh, thank you for that. Whew, he says, I could see him on the screen in front of me. He's had a long day. But you know what? I really did think we weren't going to get a Grand Prix for a minute there. We've, we've all been around the block watching stuff and being at circuits where it's poured and rained like the Bible. And we think that Noah's Ark's going to just come in at turn seven. And I thought for a minute we weren't going to have a race and I was going to feel really sorry for people because it's a long way to go and they put a lot of work in because the passion there... It's like nothing else. It's like the Beatles coming to New York, isn't it? It really is. It, it's And maybe that's something we'll touch upon in next week's podcast. Um, the, we didn't see how passionate it was uh, at the circuit, but the, the area, the town, the country is just nuts for MotoGP. And that's great to hear. So uh, have a safe trip home. Uh, Val, take care. Thank you for joining us. Uh, and from myself, Toby Moody, enjoy your week. We will be back soon. Bye for now. The Athletic.